We've been using captions on pictures for a long time. Whether a little note on the bottom of a freshly printed Polaroid or a blurb on an Instagram post, you know, you know what a caption is. And I think you'd agree that sometimes it's very helpful. It makes sense of the picture in front of us and makes sure we interpret it in a proper way or in the way that the author intended it. For example, if you saw a picture of some tower on a hill that you've never visited before, you'd be helped by the caption that said, Carillon Historical Park, Dayton, Ohio. Or if you saw a family photo from a long time ago, it would be nice if somebody took the time to write on the back explaining who is who and maybe where they're at, where the location of the picture was. Well, this is the book of Philippians. This is Paul's letter from Roman custody. And the snapshot we see is of Paul chained to a Roman guard. If you were a Philippian Christian receiving this letter and you realize the gravity of what might happen to Paul when he finally gets a trial, you realize that this isn't good at all. Paul might very well be on death row for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. One of the things Paul is after in this letter to the Philippians is to prove and instruct them that it is possible to have joy rooted in the gospel that is indestructible. It is possible. He is proving that to the Philippians, even, as we'll see this morning, even through what he's going through right now. That particular kind of joy, which Dan has mentioned, is produced by the Holy Spirit as he helps us see the beauty of Christ in the gospel and the beauty of Christ in his people. So this passage has that aim, and Paul uses his own situation to tell us this, take joy in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Simply put, take joy in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That might seem like a no-brainer. We're supposed to be glad when people come to know Christ or when we have the courage to speak the good news to others. What Paul is advocating here is not for occasionally cheering when something good happens for Team Jesus. He's advocating for you making your life's aim to take joy in bearing the name of Jesus, in being a living representation of him to those you know, and to also proclaim his good news to people who have never known him. So let me be clear, taking joy in the proclamation of Jesus Christ together as a body does not mean that each person becomes the next Paul, going, planting churches, sharing the gospel in multiple cities around the world. That is not the only way to take joy in the proclamation of Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. It certainly is a way, and we attach ourselves to those, those people in those moments and we rejoice with them. But nonetheless, we are robbing ourselves of this kind of indestructible joy by not leaning into celebrating the ways that we see Jesus being made known to others. So Paul gives us two ways that we can grow to take joy in the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The first is draw courage from the unstoppable advance of the gospel And second, value the proclamation of Jesus over self-interest. We'll spend some time on the first. Draw courage from the unstoppable advance of the gospel. He says this, I want you to know, 
brothers and sisters in Philippi, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here's what I think the snapshot of Paul's imprisonment would look like. So that picture, I think you would see Paul's face, probably well scarred at this point. And in front of his face are two chained hands. But in between those two chained hands, you can see tearfully happy eyes and a little bit of a grin. And here's what the caption would read. Rejoicing because Jesus is being proclaimed. If you were a Roman Christian where Paul is imprisoned, who had heard that Paul was over there in cell block whatever, you'd be tempted to think that this was a major loss for the cause of Christ. The Apostle Paul has come all this way to strengthen us in Rome and proclaim the gospel, but he's come here as a prisoner. But the effect was quite the opposite as some of those believers have become more confident in the Lord and more bold to speak the word without fear because of Paul's imprisonment. Why do you think that is? Do you think it may have dawned on them through Paul's rejoicing that Paul's imprisonment was actually no hindrance to the gospel reaching people? That that might have clicked for them. Even the Roman guards and their buddies had heard from Paul that he was in prison for Christ. In other words, there's no way that Paul is going to be chained to a Roman guard and that guard not hear about the, the Jesus that Paul loves. Paul wants the Philippians to know that the Roman Christians face the same threat of being in prison, just like him for being Christians. But through God's Spirit, they have been emboldened, knowing that whatever they would endure would also be a part of advancing the gospel in Rome. He's inviting the Philippians and us to draw courage and to rejoice in what seems like a loss, though it is a tremendous win. Now, I read this, this question asked in our commentary, and I think it would be useful for us. Can what worked for Paul work for me? I think We've probably asked that of ourselves a few times, just even reading Paul's letters. Can what worked for Paul work for me? He seems so sure of Christ. He seems so overjoyed in Christ. So can whatever Paul was experiencing regarding joy and the love and salvation of Jesus cause me to completely and radically reinterpret some of the most difficult circumstances I or my other brothers and sisters face? The answer to that is yes. By the Spirit of God, you can be filled with joy in a Savior whose news is good and who will have the final victory such that you could see imprisonment or hardship or scorn for his sake as a vehicle that advances his gospel. Now we know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is not something that we can conjure up, nor is it something that, though we wish, that we could give to somebody else is produced by God in us as we ask him to give it to us and as we invite the Spirit to do his work in our hearts. So, though 
some of what I'm saying this morning is, okay, draw courage from the advance of the gospel. Know that behind that is a request. Holy Spirit, help me draw courage from the advance of the gospel. I cannot even do that in and of myself, but I want to. So I need your infinite resources of power and wisdom to make that happen for me. For some of you, joy might be something you feel like you can do without. I just, I just grit and bear the hard situations of my life and I just get through it. If that's you, I'm fairly confident that your own two feet will not hold you up under what Christ might call you to endure for the sake of his name, whatever that is. Even the smallest rejection, gritting and bearing it, will not cut it. But joy in Christ and courage drawn from the advance of the gospel will. It has the possibility to sustain you. If, if ever you've heard stories of heroes in the faith, which often our response to that is discouragement. I could never, I could never be like that. For example, Richard Wormbrand, who was a Lutheran pastor, imprisoned under the Soviet bloc, tortured as a result. He said he, he and his Christian friends in the prison had an agreement with his torturers. You torture us, we'll go on preaching the gospel. How's that sound? And so for us, we're tempted to think, oh, that's, that's just impossible for me. And yet, the opportunity here, just like Paul, is to look at that and say, Jesus is the only one who can sustain us in moments of rejection or persecution or difficulty. Nothing else could do that for someone. I'll use our brother Danny as another example of the, the gospel's advance, more particularly those who had brought the gospel to Danny. So Danny is a Cedarville student who ha- hails from Guangzhou, China, a city of 65 million people. That's triple the population of New York City, just as perspective. He heard the good news of Christ in a place where Christians are often threatened by police. Do we wish that weren't so? I think we can say yes. I wish that that were not true. We wish many, in many ways that our brothers and sisters in China could have relief to worship Christ openly. But the reality is, whether we realize it or not, none of us will experience truly unhindered worship and the proclamation of our God until the new heavens and the new earth. So we don't bank on it here. We don't cast our hope on it here. In the meantime... I was drawn to rejoice when I heard Danny's story because in a city of 65 million people, some Christians took a risk upon themselves to proclaim Christ in a small school, people like you and me, so that Danny could hear the gospel and could be sitting with us this morning. The gospel has advanced in spite of opposition. And you and I and Danny and Mary are living proof of that. We can't, even if the gospel was shared very freely with you, you can count that somewhere along the line there was opposition. And by God's grace, the Spirit of God emboldened his people to carry it forward nonetheless. So the gospel advancing is not a natural thing. Again, I'll use Mary as an example. Mary choosing to be baptized this morning to tell us all about the saving death and resurrection of Jesus is not natural. 
Friends, that is supernatural. And it's something that, as believers in Christ, should ignite a joy in us because it proves that God is at the helm. Our King Jesus is driving this ship, even if it's through rough waters like what Paul was experiencing. The gospel, which is the power of God to save, is not hindered by governments that put people in chains or by individuals who ostracize you or employers who treat you differently because you represent and proclaim Jesus Christ or peers who think your beliefs are outdated or family members who hate your Sunday commitments or friends who roll their eyes when you ask them questions about God. Friends, the the gospel is not hindered by opposition. That's one, thing, one of the things that Paul is trying to untangle in our minds. In our, in our humanness, in our flesh, we think resistance means that something will not carry through or, or opposition means it's not um, worthwhile even. But the gospel is propelled into that darkness. And the more we ground ourselves in finding joy in Christ proclaimed through us, the less we will be enticed to self-preserve and save face. We will be more willing to endure scorn and mistreatment if we know that it plays a part in bringing us more joy of seeing Jesus Christ known. Here's an example from the book of Acts. Again, I'd remind you, real people like you and I, Christians. Acts 4 In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested by Jewish leaders for proclaiming Jesus. They were astonished at Peter and John's boldness as these two men defended their obligation to go on preaching Christ. The council was afraid of the people who were praising God for the healing of the lame beggar that just took place at the hand of Peter. So the council released them. And here's what it says in Acts 4.23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, opposition, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they pray for what in the face of opposition? Not that the opposition would stop, not that this would be easier or that they could preach without risk of their lives or reputation. They ask for boldness because they're not counting on the circumstances changing. They're counting on a God who can supply them with strength so that they can talk about Jesus without fear. I've heard that same request from so many people in this room at at community groups and prayer gatherings. Lord, help me share the gospel with this friend without fear. I want that. Well, may the disciples answer to that prayer in the next chapter, Acts 5, serve as proof 
that God can answer that prayer of yours as well. After more signs and wonders and more opportunities to tell about the good news of Jesus, the Jewish high priest has had enough. So he wrangles up all of the apostles this time, not just Peter and John, and arrests them. Once again, they charge them not to speak of Jesus, and the apostles give their defense that they must obey God rather than men. Just before a verdict is reached, a guy in the council named Gamaliel steps in and tells the council that this ragtag movement Will either, will either fizzle out or it is actually a work of God. He says, and if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow them. So they let the apostles go. Not this time. They beat them first and then they let them go. What's the effect? What's the apostles' mood afterwards? It says this, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house, house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It seems so backwards to us that in the midst of that opposition, they did not shrink. Instead, they were filled with joy. As we get to, a moment, get, get to in a moment, part of that is they were making a choice by faith to rejoice in what was going on. And like I said before, we look at that and say, the apostles were just a different breed. They, they were like superheroes, and I am an average Joe. When in reality, they were like us. They wrestled with fear. That's why they prayed for boldness in the first place. We, we can overlook that pretty quickly. Uh, already bold people don't pray for boldness. Fearful, scared people pray for boldness. They needed that boldness. And you know what else? They relied on the Spirit of God to take joy in the fact that Jesus was being proclaimed in spite of and even through what was happening to them. Now, speaking of what has happened to us, Paul said, what what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's trying to convince the Philippians of of a, a misconception that they might have. He's specifically talking about his imprisonment, which was explicitly for sharing the gospel. But in a secondary way, can it not be said that what has happened to you up to this point in your life has also served to advance the gospel of your Savior? What has happened to you up until now? Not in such a way that you don't matter and that the goal is just this info being transferred from one person to the next. No, but in a way which shows that what you are enduring or what you have endured has caused you to cling to Christ. It has caused you to trust him with more of yourself than ever before. It has caused you to grieve with hope. It has caused you to look at how to help others walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And as a result, The gospel is going forth, is going forth by making you a jar of clay filled with what? What does 2 Corinthians say? A jar of clay filled with treasure. Your suffering is far from meaningless. If all things work for the good of those who love him, that most certainly involves the advance of his gospel. Whether 
we can identify how exactly he uses our suffering to do that or not. It is not a prerequisite for us to to know exactly what God is doing in order for him to be doing it. We can be sure and we can trust a faithful, loving Savior that how he is choosing to work things out is for his good purposes, including the advance of the gospel, whether I know the exact movements or not. You might be disappointed because he doesn't always give you a clear answer to the question, why, Lord? You may never know. But you can be sure that God does not waste our suffering just as he did not waste Paul's imprisonment. That's what he's telling the Philippians. I am in chains, you know this. But it has actually served to advance the gospel. This, hasn't somehow, this isn't somehow a piece of the puzzle that God's like, I don't, I, I'm not sure what to do with this. I don't know how it fits into this goal. I'll read those verses from 2 Corinthians 4 to you. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show what? That the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. A second way that we actively take joy in the proclamation of Jesus Christ is that we must value the proclamation of Christ over self-interest. Paul said in verse 15, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Doesn't that sound just a little bit weird? Apparently, there are some people who are preaching Christ as a way to get at Paul. Either to say like, natty natty boo boo, we're out here preaching the gospel and you're stuck in prison. Or to somehow, I'm not exactly sure how, to make his imprisonment worse. Somehow, them preaching the gospel out there is, is... either burdening Paul or, or causing him to wonder, why, why, why them and not me? Why am I not out there? So they, they have ill motives. But there were some who were preaching Christ from pure motives out of, a, out of a love for Paul. You would almost expect Paul to bite back at these naysayers. They are jealous. They're possibly like pitting their reputation against Paul, saying that Paul guy down the streets ministry isn't as good as ours, as if it were a competition. Apparently, they're truly preaching Christ and not some other gospel, but their motives are twisted in such a way that they drag Paul through the mud. It might sound unfamiliar at first, but how many times are we tempted to diminish and demean other faithful churches or ministries in order to puff up our own brand of Christianity. I know I'm guilty. That's rivalry. That's envy. And it's no reason to proclaim Christ. The motivation for proclaiming Christ and for us existing as a church is reserved for the glory of Jesus' name, not for some church ranking or some sense of superiority. Nonetheless, Paul is in some sort of crossfire here. 
like I said, you would expect a stern rebuke, but Paul surprisingly is not very troubled by it. Instead, he responds like this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So what? So what if they aim to soil my name as an apostle? What then if Paul is forgotten? Paul says, only this matters to me, that Christ is proclaimed and that he is. So I'm here rejoicing. Paul's joy is so detached from his self-interest that it does not matter to him that he's being possibly bad-mouthed somewhere out there. I just want Christ to be proclaimed. And so long as he is, I will rejoice. What would it take for us to have that attitude? I just want Christ proclaimed. Like water rolling off of a duck's oily feathers, the threat of a ruined reputation rolls off of the back of a Christian who values Jesus being known to others more than his or her self-interest. One author I read this week said, said this, the advancement of the message, not the advancement of Paul, is the source of Paul's joy. Like I said, Paul is making a choice here. He is choosing to value the proclamation of Jesus. And we have this choice, a choice that is massively difficult if we're honest. But what we can rest on here is that we're doing the same thing as the Philippians. We are here listening to Paul explain that his imprisonment is for the most worthwhile and joy-producing thing in all of the world, which is seeing the message of Jesus Christ hand-delivered to other people some of whose eyes will be peeled open and who will believe and be saved from hell and their sin. It's only when we dwell on how wonderful that can be that we start to get excited. I know I, know I do. We start to want people to know Jesus. The Jesus whom we love and treasure and have laid our lives aside to follow. An entire life can be wasted seeking joy in, in marketing our self-importance. An entire life can be wasted trying to find joy and making a name for ourselves. Whether teens or college students or adults or middle-aged or beyond, some of us know exactly how exhausting it is trying to seem utterly unique and the most interesting person in the world. You might get somewhere with it, but I've, I've tried it. Don't buy it. It won't lead to joy. Paul proves to us that his approval ratings can rise or fall, but his joy was rooted in a gospel that will continue to go forth, a Christ who will continue to reign, and a God who will make his glory known in all the earth, such that he has died to his self-interest and will celebrate the proclamation of Jesus however it may come about. And we are invited to do the same, to live for something other than an 80-year American dream, for example, to live for something other than the small goal of day-in and day-out self-care, to dedicate our dreams and our days and our weekends and our free time and our work time and our family time to seeing and rejoicing in Christ being made known. 
Again, when I say that, don't just think evangelism. Think, think about rejoicing in a baptism. Think about strangers coming into this church who have never known Christ before who we get to meet. Think about Danny's church in China. Think about Mark and Becca in the Mediterranean who are proclaiming the gospel, but who we have the, the privilege to support as friends and senders in a very unique way in Mark and Becca's case. We, we get to share in the reward that is coming from them proclaiming Christ in a nation where Christ is hardly known. So that is, that's just one way that we rejoice. We take part in what's going on. Think about the opportunities you have to pray with someone else who has a burden to share the gospel with a particular friend or family member. Everything that we do as a church body is geared towards the proclamation of Christ. And so we take part in them with the expectation that in our midst and outside of this body, Christ is proclaimed. Jesus said that our love for one another sends a message to the world that we are Jesus' disciples that they may believe that God the Father sent him to us. So it's multifaceted, the ways in which we can value the proclamation of Christ. I do want to say something about personally sharing the gospel briefly, though. It's easy to reduce the idea of sharing the gospel to either, I stink at this, why bother? Or I'll try to do my best to do the bare minimum. And listen for just a second. I'm not, I'm not about to rail on you because those two examples are straight from my own struggle here. Let's, let's take, take a moment to s- simplify. Whatever fears might be in our minds, whatever uh, past experiences even, do you want other people, people you know, to believe in Jesus? To experience what you've experienced from a merciful God? If you don't, I just invite you to ask yourself, why? why? Why is that? If that's the farthest desire for you, why might that be? I don't know. Only, only, only you know. If you do want that, I'd say this is a wonderful place to be. The best start. I'll say it again. That's not natural. That desire in you is not natural. That's God's work of turning your heart towards him and towards others. You know what that is? It's the first and the second greatest commandment. I want to love Christ and I want others to love him too. So if you want others to experience the burden of their guilt being lifted, to be saved from darkness and brought into Christ's kingdom, if you want them to know the goodness and glory of God like you've known it, but you feel gripped with fear about opening your mouth and sounding like an alien to someone, then take joy in the proclamation of Christ in the, in the ways that we just talked about, all those different ways, so that you can invite the Spirit to not only fill you with joy, but fill you with courage as well. I'm, I'm right there with you. I get into my head about this stuff. I get worked up figuring out what's the best way to steer a conversation or get into a conversation. How do I present this cleanly? What's the best timing? This morning is a chance to scale all of that back. You want them to know Jesus. Tell them about who it is that you've come to love and show them Christ's love in action. Tell them the good news about Jesus 
that their sin against their God has separated them. Tell them about the Savior who was sent to die for them. Tell them who rose conquering death and who rules right now until he judges between those who belong to him and those who don't give way, giving way to death and eternal punishment or eternal life and pleasure on a newly created heaven and earth. What prevents us from saying those sorts of words except the fear of suffering? I dread what the fallout would be. So Paul, in, in many ways throughout each of his letters, explains that the fallout is either a person will respond to Christ by believing the message, or the gospel will be advanced through your rejection and suffering. We as Christians can grow increasingly more comfortable with the thought that we will suffer in some measure purely for claiming the name of Jesus, much less proclaiming him to others if we know that it's a win-win we will grow increasingly comfortable with the thought of suffering if we know that it's a win-win, if we believe God's word and what he says to us. We proclaim and some believe or we proclaim and suffer for the advance of the gospel. But hear me out. Paul and his exhortation to the Philippians is not so much get used to it, you're going to suffer. It's more than that. It's more than that. It's an echo of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed, happy, overjoyed, and favor are those who are reviled and mocked for believing in and proclaiming the name of Jesus. Let them rejoice, Jesus said. Their reward is great. And that's what's available to us, church. Very real joy, a very real heavenly reward. Ask Paul. It was real to him while he was chained to a Roman guard. How do we access that joy? By asking the Spirit and choosing choosing to draw courage from the advance of the gospel when we see it happening, and by valuing every, every moment, every opportunity, every dollar, every prayer we have opportunity to utilize to see Jesus proclaimed. We want to see him proclaimed, do we not? That is why this church exists, our mission statement. We exist to enjoy and declare and display the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. And I pray that by the Holy Spirit, we would be filled with a sense of joy as Jesus is proclaimed to others from this body.